everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Podcast, where we talk about the social responsibility of business leaders through the week's news and try to figure out who is getting it right and who is stepping in it. I'm Caleb Gardner. And I'm Adrielle Parker. This week, we're going to look at a roundup of the week's news, including the latest in American politics, the latest AI news. There's quite a bit this week. Some big retirement media mogul news. <laughs> some other some other things that are uh, really important. It was, a, it was a big news week. It was a then big we're going to deep dive week. into some climate change news and some uh, themes around uh, Adrielle's conference that she went to last week. And then, as, we, as always, round up with some very good news for the week. Hopefully it's very good news. How are you doing, Adrielle? I am doing all right. Um, we finally got some sunshine here in New York, which was much needed. We had four back-to-back days of just rain and mist and fog, and it felt like I was in Seattle, which mm. I've never been to, but I've heard that's how it is. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if I even want to go visit now. <laughs> It was, that's how it, it is here right now. It's yeah. real. It's real gross. I don't really know what's going on, but yeah. uh, I'm ready for fall. At least it's not too hot. Yeah, as long agreed. as it's not, it's not sweaty. We're in like an insane cicada season here. Really, where it's like, oh yeah. Every time you walk outside, it's like, it was. It's been like deafening, uh, and they don't really know why it's so bad. Huh. So I'm ready for it to cool down so those cicadas get back to their tiny little goddamn hiding spaces and leave us alone we have um the spotted lantern flies which are um apparently well apparently we're supposed to still be attempting to kill them because they're right there's a big controversy right yeah they're harmful to i guess some of the foliage and also they leave this gross sticky moldy residue um, that they kind of excrete. Uh, and Ew. so, yeah, they're everywhere. We also have a, a ridiculous amount of bees this season, too. It's, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Is this the rapture? Like, I don't know That's what's supposed happening. to be <laughs> the rapture. That's supposed <laughs> to be a good thing, right? We're supposed to want the bees to come back. I feel like that's the one where, if all those, those that's the one that seems like we should be cheering for. Yes, but I've never seen, when I tell you there are a lot, like I've never seen so many bees in my time, my 15 years living in New York City. <laughs> it, there are tons, tons. And they're aggressive. Nice, but, but New Yorkers don't yeah. handle them well. No, not at all. <laughs> oh. oh, well, let's start by saying happy Hispanic and Latino Heritage Month, Adrian. Ooh, ooh. This is when we need the, uh, some... the sound box. Yeah, burr, 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 burr. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, some new news that you dropped in here that I think was really important. Uh, Latino buying power mm-hmm. has surged $3.2 trillion yeah. in 2021. This is this state is even a little old. <laughs> right. So this is, a, this is a big, big buying segment. If you If you are a corporate leader and you care at all about uh, consumers mm-hmm. buying things mm. seems like you need to be paying attention to your Hispanic and Latino folks. Absolutely, absolutely. What else happened in the news this week, though, Adriel? Like, there's so much. I don't even know where to begin. Like, there's. I, I feel like we got to acknowledge that, like, we are really bad about calling whether or not a strike is going to start or end because every <laughs> time we talk about a strike, I'm like, oh, it looks like the UAW is not going to strike, and then yeah. like that afternoon they strike. Yeah. Oh, it looks like the writer strike is going to go on a really long time. And mm-hmm. then like that afternoon, oh, looks like there's a deal. Yeah. So we're just, we're not in the strike prediction business here. Nah. But it is exciting to see that the writer strike is coming to an end, that they came to a deal where, and it sounds like the writers mostly got what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds like 
they did. We'll see what happens. Um, actors are still outside picketing, though. So there is that. Um, yep. So Hollywood's not fully back in swing yet, but we're going to see some late night resurgence more than likely pretty yep. soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, in other actually strike related news, big thing, uh, Biden, one of the first presidents in a very, very long time to actually join the picket line with UAW auto workers yesterday. Yeah. Pretty big, pretty big move. I mean, I, there's a lot of political back and forth about this. Like Trump's in Michigan right now. He's trying to do, he's stumping for, you know, the votes for auto workers. So some of this, some of this can be seen as Biden trying to like buffer a little bit against that. I also do just genuinely think he is very pro-labor president. He has said that many times and he wants to, you know, be on the side of, of these folks. Yeah. So, it's, it's big. It is. It really is. Um, and, you know, as someone who grew up in that area, Northwest Ohio, which uh, was home to Jeep and Chrysler, Daimler Chrysler for a very long time. I had family members that worked there for years. Um, I already know that having someone like Biden come there and actually support is a big deal. Um, and I'm sure it means a lot to these workers yeah. who have sacrificed a lot and you know, haven't dealt with the best of, of working conditions over the years uh, with these auto plants. So, yeah. 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 And he's been making in some of his speeches like a really good point about how much they sacrificed when the auto industry was about to go under in 2008. Right. Um, back in the Great Recession. And now they need to be taken care of because the auto industry has come back in a really big way. Mm -hmm. And so... Love to see it. I know there was some some people were kind of arguing about like politicizing the process and do we want politicians in the middle of the negotiations? But I think this was a smart move for him politically and just, you know, great for him to show solidarity, solidarity with the workers. Yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, this is a, in the backdrop of Americans, new research showing that Americans are exhausted by politics. Mm. I don't think this really surprises anyone. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, who is not exhausted? Even people who work in politics are exhausted by politics. But uh, new research from the Pew Research Center says 65% of people say they always or often feel exhausted huh. when thinking about politics. Only 4% of U.S. adults say the political system is working extremely or very well. Again, Interesting. not doesn't seem like that much of a surprise. No, not at all. Not at all. Honestly, I thought it would be lower than that <laughs> like for the amount yeah. of folks that think our system is working very well um yeah yeah not surprising i mean historic lows for for views of many governmental and political institutions growing share of the public nearly three in ten people express unfavorable views of both parties the highest share in three decades of polling i wonder if how much of this is about the moment we're in right now versus mm -hmm. this is just been a kind of growing sentiment for a really long time like are we just underwhelmed i mean you see two of the oldest candidates running for president in history right now yeah and a lot of people who aren't plugged in just kind of disengaging and all they see is like people arguing about how old one is and how crazy the other mm -hmm. one is <laughs> or corrupt you know like choose your adjective so do you think this is just people who you know are, are just not that plugged in and just feel, again, kind of tired about the whole thing and just don't really want to be paying attention? Um, I think yes. I, I think for sure there are a lot of people that are disconnected. I think there are also people who have been plugged in historically who are just 
sick of America's shit, honestly. Um, yeah, and right. tired of the broken system and uh, our slow, antiquated processes that are not in lockstep with how quickly society overall is progressing and um, that haven't embraced or acknowledged all of the change that has happened over the past, what, three to four years. Um, yeah. I was just talking to someone about this earlier where it just feels like we're all just afraid to acknowledge the elephant in the room. And I hate, I feel like that's such an overused statement, but <laughs> you know, we're all just kind of going about life as before. And yet life is not as it was before prior to COVID hitting us. Um, and that's across the board, not just in the professional yeah. sense, but personal life too. And yet we're just expected to show up and, you know, I always think of that, um, that meme with the dog, with the, he's sitting at the, the table with the coffee <laughs> and the room is on fire. He's like, this, this is fine. fine. Yeah, Literally. That's, like, <laughs> that's how we feel. Has there ever been a more relatable meme? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I need to get that. I would, I would say even going back from that, like things haven't felt normal since Trump. Mm. I mean, at least that's, that's <laughs> yes. how I feel. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, that's obviously real. everyone knows my political bias on this podcast. I work for President Obama. My, my kind of wear my political bias on my, on my sleeve. Mm. But, you know, like we felt like, a normal somewhat quote-unquote normal political system then where it's like yeah. we have major disagreements some individual politicians are assholes you know like there's kind of just you know we were it was dysfunctional in a way that felt like manageable and mm -hmm. since trump it's felt dysfunctional and corrupt in a way that has felt increasingly i don't know if it's not so much unmanageable because i think the system for the most part has still worked it just moves again super slowly yeah frustratingly slowly and just feels divisive and mm -hmm. corrupt and too slow to deal with you know the problems that we have right in front of us yeah oh you make you do make a really great point with things changing at the time that trump was elected i remember where i was when it happened and just like that sinking feeling in my stomach of oh shit <laughs> like this is this is this is happening and yep. so much has changed since then. So isn't it wild? Uh, like how much you remember? I mean, uh, so many of us have memories of where we were when we heard the news. Yeah. Just like you know, the only equivalent I have that in my lifetime is like 9-11. Yeah. Know? Like, it's yeah. Like that, that is the equivalent of like hearing that Trump got elected for a, a lot of Americans. It's, it's kind of insane to think about. Yeah. And such a drastic comparison to how I felt when... Um, when Obama was elected for the first time around. And I'll never forget, I was in my, I was actually in my college dorm in the financial district and literally the entire city just like erupted in this roar. It was like when we were clapping for Aww. all of the frontline workers during COVID, but like 10 times that it was, it was, it, it literally is, it, it's ingrained in my brain, but. Oh, um, gives me chills what a time. about now. What a time, yeah. Yeah. Gives me chills. I mean, do you know where I was? I was in Grant Park in Chicago oh. where he gave his acceptance speech yeah. with, you know, ten th tens of thousands of other Chicagoans, oh. you know, hearing him give that acceptance speech and then spilling out from Grant Park into downtown Chicago mm -hmm. was just like this massive celebration. And it was, I'll never, I mean, there was nothing like it. It was yeah. just everyone happy, like high-fiving each other, just Maybe the exact opposite of the yeah, the exactly, experience. exactly. It makes you kind wonder: Will we ever about. have a, a a moment like that again, where we all have this this thing or this moment or person that brings us together in that way, in this excited, happy, elated yeah. feeling? 
It's hard. I mean, our political system isn't set up for that. Mm-hmm. That's that's what's so hard about this. You know, like I get that people feel jaded and to, but just coming from politics, like we are we are set up to compromise. We are set, set up to get compromise leaders and compromise you know, candidates because of the way that our system is set up. Like it's it's very hard to rally around someone who's inspiring and going to do things different because of the way democracy, I mean, it's really the way democracy works, but especially our political system in particular. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. We just went down a major rabbit hole on the political system, but I will, the, just to put a nice little bow on this, I want to call out that uh, majorities back age limits, term limits, and eliminating the federal or the electoral college. I think we know mm-hmm. the debate that's been happening around the electoral college and its effect on the presidential race in particular. But yeah. isn't it fascinating to think about backing age and term limits? Term limits, I think I get totally behind, especially for the majority of people elected. But age limits, mm-hmm. Karen really changed my thinking about this. When we talked to Karen Walward a few weeks ago about aging gracefully, yeah. ageism, age, age in the workplace, should age, do you think age should be a factor or should it just be term limits? Um, as much as I enjoyed that conversation and all of the insights that we gained from it, I do think there should be some age limits. Um, I mean, time is fixed. Yeah. Human life is fixed, right? We're, we're not going to live forever, although some people are out here trying to. I recently went down a, a rabbit hole on stem cells and oh yeah yeah there's a lot Anyways, of people trying to the fix, tech bros are loving the stem aging. cells it's right crazy. now <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> like people are having kids just for stem cells i digress Wild. um i do think there is some point at which i don't i don't know the age though i can't specify yeah exactly the age, that's what it gets to where is. do you draw the line where what yeah. what is the age because you could yeah that's the sticky part and maybe it's not so much age where it, it maybe for me, it's more so cognitive function and mm. ability to reason and to make sound decisions. And I don't know if there's a way to test for that because, right. you know, as Karen kind of helped us dig into, it, it's not necessarily relevant to the number because 40 for some folks is different and 50 is different, 60 is, and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have so much news to talk about, but I want to go down this rabbit hole so bad. Last thing I want to tell you is, is like, I just want to paint a picture of a dystopian future where we have like data, like we have tracking data about health metrics, like embedded into our bodies in some way, not just kind of worn in our skins. Oh, and God. this kind of like combination of health, health data is read by some AI and uh-huh. your fitness for office is given some kind of score based on your health data, based on your, an AI's reading of your health data. Couldn't you see that being some potential future? It's giving like black mirror. Right? Kids would say. That's it's what giving. I'm saying. <laughs> but you could see it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could definitely see it. I, anything is possible <laughs> in this day and age. Um, but yeah, I think... I, that's not a bad idea. Something that is actually tracking over time, cognitive ability, your physical health, mental health, all those things. Oh, that get, that makes me, yeah. from a data ethics perspective, super well, nervous. <laughs> I mean, your our automakers already have it, right? We talked about that. Oh a few God, yeah, ago. that's what we need. Let's <laughs> let our automakers take that and t- tell us who's like. Joe Biden goes on one ride in in an EV, and then the EV right. goes, "Nope, you shouldn't be in office." <laughs> 
<laughs> is that why he was over there in Michigan? There you go. That's it. That's why he's on the UAW line to bring oh, it back. Goodness. See, we brought it all the way back. Don't worry, Here Dave. This was Here not that much of a rabbit hole. We're we're <laughs> back to the news cycle now. Woo. Oh. Um Okay, well, speaking of maybe the greatest segue from that is to talk about the, the week in AI, because there was some uh, mm-hmm. AI-related news this week. Maybe the biggest story is a bunch of um, authors, George R.R. R. Martin, Jody Piccolo, Pico, how do you say her name? Piccolo? I think you don't pronounce the T, right? It's French? Picot? Picot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, butchered it. Anyway, John Grisham, Jonathan Frazen, 17 prominent authors joined a suit led by the Authors Guild to protect workers' rights. They're suing OpenAI. This is very similar to um, some artists that sued OpenAI a few months ago. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Are they are, Is this just like dominoes falling? Like all the artists kind of realizing, oh, no, we don't want you to have our data without permission. Um, Perhaps. I mean, you certainly can go right on ChatGPT and ask it to summarize a book for you. And at that point, it's like, do I even want or need to buy the book? Yeah. So. What if it would be different if you bought some digital copy of the book and then asked it to summarize that? Like you actually purchased the book and then you asked it to summarize? Because there are new ways. I don't know if you saw it, like they're rolling out new ways to talk to ChatGPT, literally talk to ChatGPT. Yeah. You could use photos now. Um, mm-hmm. You can have a conversation with it. So it's getting smarter every day. But I do think yeah. we're getting a lot of this pushback on how it's trained and where the data is coming from. Yeah, I think a lot of our conversations over the past couple of months as it relates to AI keep leading back to this recurring theme of AI being a tool that we leverage, right? And something Mm -hmm. that we're eventually going to have to integrate into our work. And so I think, yes, it could be that you, I don't know, you go download your Kindle edition of this book and then there is this built-in AI that can help summarize it or break down parts of it for you. Like I could see something like that, but I do think it should be up to the creators, the authors in this case, to opt into that. Yeah, I could see that, like an AI being built right into a Kindle. Yeah. And that's actually related to other AI news this week, which is that Amazon agreed to invest $4 billion in an AI startup called Anthropic. Anthropic? Anthropic. I think that's um, how you say I'm that. I'm so curious. How how are they? Uh, they've got a lot of money because did, aren't they? Didn't they just get sued by the FTC? Uh, Isn't yeah, that they in have our a shit ton of money. <laughs> like, yes, my goodness. Great segue. That's what that is. Oh. Something that I want to talk about. Amazon is being sued by the FTC oh. in 17 states over its monopoly power. This is a huge story. It's one of the biggest it legal faces. It's le- it's one of the biggest legal challenges it has ever faced. It's so the argument that they are making. Mm-hmm. is that Amazon abuses its position in the marketplace to inflate prices on other platforms, overcharge sellers, and stifle competition. Even just mm-hmm. saying that, I feel like I'm like, yeah, we've known that for a really long time. I'm How glad you're catching up. This? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's... <laughs> Amazon has been around, what, 30 plus years now? Yeah. Duh. I mean, it, <laughs> they allege it engages in anti-competitive practices through anti-discounting measures that deter sellers from offering lower prices for products. It, the complaint also says the company degrades the customer experience by replacing relevant search results with paid advertisements, biasing its mm. own brands over other products. If Amazon gets dinged for that, they're going to have to come for Walmart. They're going to have to come for 
Apple, they're going to have to, I mean, every company does that, right? Like any company that has any kind of marketplace with, with products on that marketplace that also compete with an open, open market, Mm -hmm. they prioritize their own product. Let's be honest. It happens all over the place. It does. It does. I even, I can't think of the name of it, but there used to be this plugin that I had on my browser. And whenever I would like shop for something, it would pop up and be like, you can get a better discount over here on this open market and i'm like how do they factor into this then because i'm sure there are tons of tools like that yeah Um, i mean that when you start building tools like that you get incentivized to game it because how many people are going to come in and pay you to game the system mm -hmm. instacart this week had a huge valuation did you see that and part of their business model is advertisements within instacart yeah. Like companies paying to promote their products above other people's products in the shopping ecosystem. Yep. This happens all over the place. It does. It does. Anyway, uh, well, uh. I'm keeping my eye on Instacart's valuation. I think it's going to go down. I think it's a little overpriced. Keeping my eye yeah. on, on AI spending by Amazon. But do you think the suit has merit? You think they're going to, you think they're, I'm going to say, you think they're going to get them? Think they're gonna get them this time? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. If they do, I think to your point, this means that we're gonna then have to start looking at all of these other companies and organizations out here. And then, does that mean that we're going to start looking at establishing some regulations? If so, how is that gonna take us another ten years? Because we know how long that always takes. Like I Yeah, we are not good about know. establishing new regulations by any not at all. way, shape, or form. Not at all. So yeah, we'll see. I feel like I don't know. I almost feel like they're just gonna settle and keep it pushing, but maybe, but I, I think they're trying to establish precedent, right? Yeah. I mean Amazon Amazon does this. We know that they do it. We know that they have monopoly power over so much of the market, the especially the e commerce market. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of do they have the regulatory tools and legal framework to, to actually punish them in a way that actually will deter this behavior in the future and actually de- will deter other people from doing this and sure. or other companies, I should say. We'll see. I think that's the they're rolling the dice a little bit, but I don't think anyone anyone doubts that Amazon is guilty of these things. It's just our I mean, like legal system yeah. is not set up to deal with the kinds of monopolies that we have now. Right. Because we never anticipated I mean, this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Amazon controls what all, nearly half of the uh, e-commerce market, so they're yeah. they're really the FTC is they're really going for it, standing ten toes down, as the kids say. I just <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. Looking forward to updates. Yeah. All right. Last big story of the week that we got to talk about is Rupert Oof. Murdoch, <laughs> the chairman of. Fox and News Corporation is retiring and leaving his son Lachlan, the sole executive in charge of the global media empire. I don't know what to say about Rupert Murdoch other than don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. (laughs) This was not a good dude. (laughs) Well, yeah, of course. His family owns it. We know that's going to happen. Yeah. But like, let, let let me back up. Let me back up and say savvy businessman. Mm-hmm. was was isn't like political in the way that we would assume like I, he mm-hmm. doesn't yes he built fox news yes he had a super destructive 
you know, like influence on not only American politics, but global politics in a way that I think, you know, anyone who cares about social responsibility should be upset about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not even that he created a, um, you know, a quote unquote right wing media ecosystem or like saw that as a market opportunity because he was a businessman who saw it as a market opportunity and went for it. And that's what it comes down to. Yeah, it's that when it became this massive snake eating its own tail in terms of its interaction with the politicians, in terms of its dishonesty, in terms of everything that we know Fox News to be, he just let it play. He didn't, he didn't care about the actual you know, product as much as he cared mm-hmm. about the business because he yeah. knew that the, pro- the red meat that they would throw their audience was always going to be profitable. And it was. To date, at least. What do you think? Where's, where's Murdoch fall on your, uh, I don't know, uh, evil empire meter? He falls into the category of I had, hadn't really paid attention to him or followed him. <laughs> hey, well, hey, good for you. Good for you. So I'm learning a lot right now because he's just one of those people where I'm just like, oh, another old rich white guy. Yeah, <laughs> like, he is. He was another know? old rich white guy. But I think my yeah. my uh, again political background is showing because uh, he has been. He just Fox has been this uh, just a destructive force for so long. But he yeah. specifically, um, based on you know reports that I've heard about working with him, just also mm-hmm. was kind of an asshole. So mm. you know what? He's a rich asshole. He can retire and, and spend time on his many many yachts. Yeah. He's up there in age. I didn't realize he was. Oh, yeah. He's 92. Yeah. He's up there. Well, yeah. Good times. (laughs) There's that. (laughs) There's that. That's the thing that happened. It was a busy news week. It Um, was. It was. What are you going to deep dive on for today? Um, I want to talk about my visit to Fast Company's Innovation Festival last week. It was life-changing, and that sounds so dramatic, but it really was. Um, I walked away with a lot of insights, a lot of new knowledge, um, some new perspectives on things, and a lot of questions, which Mm. I think is always a win. I think when you attend or hear a talk or engage in a workshop and you walk away with questions, that means the folks that were leading it did their job. Yeah. Because you're inspired sounds, to keep thinking. So. Sounds great. I'm excited to hear. Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, you? Um, I want to talk about technology and climate change. Specifically, I want okay. to talk about how there's a great article in The Verge that says techno fixes to climate change aren't living up to the hype. And so I want to just kind of take a little bit of a status check about our ability to fight climate change and the role that technology plays in that. I, for one, honestly, have like the innovation space um, in technology has made me the most optimistic about climate change. And I think this brought me back down to earth a little bit, (laughs) not in a way where I'm pessimistic now, but in a way where I'm, I think, a little bit more realistic about how we're going to innovate our way out of this versus just, you know, have to be more responsible. So I kind of want to talk about that, about the kind of state of the industry and just how we need to think about it in terms of um, not losing hope. Okay. Sounds good. Why don't we start here with the uh, techno fixes to climate change and the good and bad of technology as it relates to solving our climate crisis. So 
This article was prompted by a new report by the International Energy Agency, put out a new roadmap for the energy sector to reach net zero uh, greenhouse gases. Um, pretty important, pretty important stuff. You know, we're, we're, we're still, let's just say, not doing enough. Um, we need to swiftly switch to renewable energy while minimizing the use of things that, you know, like actually put more carbon into the atmosphere. I think that isn't something that we didn't already know. But sure. the report specifically um, recommends minimizing the use of technologies that are still largely in demonstration, quote unquote, demonstration and prototype phase, including carbon mm -hmm. capture and hydrogen fuels. That's a big difference in this new report, um, just being a lot more sober about emerging technologies. I think because of how much hype they've gotten, I think that, you know, I think many people in the energy industry in particular have kind of seen them as a quick fix to mm -hmm. solving our way to um, putting less carbon into the atmosphere without right. having to have a lot of pain on the energy sector. Basically, like, if we can find ways to remove carbon as we're putting it in, like mm -hmm. some of these carbon capture technologies do, or, you know, just take it completely out of the atmosphere, then we don't have to slow dramatically slow down the pace of how much carbon we are actually putting into the atmosphere. Turns out that's not true, or at least this report is not very optimistic that that's going to make a huge difference. Um, they just haven't lived up to the hype. I think that's what it, what it comes down to. And yeah. the more that we try to, you know, look to new fancy technologies, the less, the, the more we are actually deferring that kind of pain um, for having to just change the way that we consume energy. The, the roadmap also says renewable power capacity globally needs to triple by 2030 in order to stop generating planet heating pollution in the first place. So spending on clean energy needs to more than double from 1.8 trillion this year to 4.5 trillion by early next decade. Energy efficiency also has to double within the same time frame. So the takeaway that I took from this isn't so much that these technologies aren't good or that we shouldn't continue to innovate and find creative solutions. It's just that the hype from these technologies is distracting us from the very hard work of actually changing our energy system. I kind of mm -hmm. liken it to uh, diet fads. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. where um, we're always looking for a quick fix, you know, lose a couple pounds here, change our, you know, go on this diet here and it's going to solve everything. When in fact, you actually just have to put in a lot of pain and hard work. You have to eat less you know, you have to like eat right. fewer calories than you consume. You have to like work out. You have to do all the things. We know these things. We know what mm -hmm. we have to do. It's just we have a really hard time doing it and doing it consistently. I kind of yeah. liken this to that where it's like we know who the major industries that are the polluters are. We know what we need to do to stop that pollution. It's just there's a lot of economic pain. There's a lot of infrastructure overhaul that we need to do. There's frankly still a lot of like personal consumer decision making that needs to change although again i i i'm kind of person who puts more responsibility on the in, on industry than on us as individuals yeah and focusing on these overhyped quick fix kinds of things is just going to distract us from that pain yeah yeah i could see that 
could see that. I like the comparison to the the diets because that helps that helped me kind of wrap my head around it, I think, a bit more. Um, so it sounds like just to make sure I'm hearing correctly that we have we have we we have the knowledge. We know what needs to be done. But we're just constantly looking for something better. What else can we do? Which seems to perhaps even be causing or contributing to the harm, which seems very silly, <laughs> but also not yeah, that's surprising. Right. So given this new report, um, what or how should leaders be thinking about implementing this, this new yeah. knowledge? You know what? I think that the reason why I was attracted to this story is that there is a lot here that we have counseled leaders about in terms of their investments in the future for almost any major change. And to me, climate change and being socially or socially and environmentally responsible is no different, which is that the moonshot ideas are important to invest in because sometimes they really pay off. But they if they are more than like 10, 20 percent of your budget, that might be a little too much for something that isn't proven isn't proven going to going to work, right? Like, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. the things that we are know are have a lot of data on are defensible. We know again are going to make a huge difference in terms of our ability to take carbon out of the atmosphere or not put it in the atmosphere in the first place. Are hard and unsexy, but should be the majority of what we are doing, even if it is just incremental, day by day, making progress. It's just, I mean, this is, this is a microcosm of a larger cultural issue, which is that we are attracted to the new and sexy. Like, it's a novelty, was, shiny object yeah. problem, right? As you were saying that, I'm thinking to myself, are you still talking about climate change? Or are you talking about <laughs> DEI? <laughs> like, right? Like, which one? <laughs> because there are patterns. Honestly, there yeah. are patterns. Yeah, it's, folks are constantly looking for the, well, what's new? What's going to be easier? What's going to be the low-hanging fruit? And it's like, no, we are. We have the data. We know what's going to actually work. We've seen it work in some instances, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah. I so. honestly, I, I just feel like this is a life lesson. Like there's, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm, I'm very interested in this. I don't know if you've, I wrote about this a little bit in my book, this concept of stochastic self-similarity, which basically okay. means that the universe, nature, when given, you know, given chaos like when it whenever it's whenever it has its way it creates patterns out of seeming chaos so the stars and networks of stars look a lot like networks of forests and trees and leaves look a lot like mm-hmm. molecules and uh, like there are patterns that we can pick up in terms of like even something that seems very chaotic or unplanned ne- like neural networks is a great way to think about it. like neural networks in the brain look a lot like neural networks and in tech like my bigger point is here is that there are behavioral patterns that act the same way where it's like it feels like they're unrelated but oh by the way we can learn over here a lesson that we can apply over here so the big life lesson listener to bring this (laughs) back into something that you can apply is that the things that are the most meaningful and are going to make the most impact over time are usually unsexy are usually hard and are usually the most important to apply over and over and over again. And occasionally something that you weren't expecting, something that is some new idea Mm -hmm. um, 
is worth your time to invest in. But don't put all your energy into unproven ideas when we know the hard, unsexy thing is the most important thing that we've got to do on any given day. Yeah. Don't go on a keto diet when you know you just got to work out and eat less. You know? Yeah. Like, people have had success with those things. Don't get me wrong. Again, it's, it works for some people. Mm-hmm. But and before you try the new dio- diet fad, just try working out and eating less. Yeah. Old school calories in versus calories out. That's right. Yeah. I wonder, actually, as we're talking about this, speaking of patterns applying in different places, how much people are going to talk about AI in the same way mm-hmm. in a few years. Where we spent so much money and hype and oh. the hype cycle of AI. And it turns out yeah. we didn't put enough money and hype on the unsexy thing that actually makes our business better every day. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I'm curious to see where it goes. Um, a, a few of my notes that I want to share during my deep dive are related to AI. So, Well, let's do it. Let's go yeah. into yours. I, I've been fascinated by, uh, I saw some of your grams from it. It looked like a good time. Yeah. Tell us what you it learned. Was, it was great. Um, it was a, I'll have to say, I have to say it was a star-studded event for sure. Um, I heard Halle Berry speak. Oh, cool. Who is currently the chief communications officer of a company called Pendulum that specializes in probiotics. Um Halle Berry. I, 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 I did not know the the Halle Berry. Yes. Okay. Um, and so how she got there was that she um, started taking these probiotics and she discovered that they lowered her A1C levels. And if you're not familiar, Halle Berry has had um, diabetes, type one diabetes since she was in her early 20s. And she was like, this was one of the first times I was able to lower my A1C level despite really working at it, working out, eating as healthily as possible. And she just became really interested and invested in this this company and then eventually became friends um, with the founder and landed this role of chief communications officer. And she's really like an evangelist. But yeah. Um, so there, she was there. Um, Tracy Ellis Ross was there. She was talking about how she developed her hair care line, Pattern Beauty, which was a result of her dealing with all of the chaos that comes along with having kinky, curly, coily hair. Yeah. I can relate. For example, <laughs> one of the examples she gave, which I was like, I feel so seen, was you know when you have a, a kinky, coily hair texture, you typically need more conditioner than shampoo. And when you go buy products as they stand now, for the most part, you usually are getting both of the same size or there's two in one products. Um, and she talked about how she wanted to provide more conditioner than shampoo uh, as part of her product offerings. But as she went to consider making this larger bottle of conditioner, the shelves don't even fit the bottles. So she had to think oh about packaging and accessibility and how do we get it on the shelves? And it was just, it was really interesting to, to hear about um, but there were some other talks, but the running theme was really authenticity. And even as I just shared those two examples, the reason they're involved in these products and, and have come up with these products in the case of Tracy Ellis Ross is because it was tied to something that mattered to them. And mm. that was part of who they are, inherently part of who they are. Um, and so I was just so inspired by that. And I, I looked back at my notes and nearly every conversation or talk that I set in on um, dropped some hint or literally said authenticity throughout at some point. Um, I went and set in on a talk about the new age of menopause 
Um, right. I sat in on an accessibility talk, um, lots of AI floating around of throughout course. all. Um, there was a, yes, of course, there was an ESG conversation, rethinking leadership. Um, I even sat in on one that was talking about just rethinking our physical office spaces, which we've talked about a bit yep. in, you know, the whole return to office hybrid work debacle. Um, but there was even one panelist who just validated that authenticity is going to be like the number one skill that leaders need moving forward um, in this hyper-connected AI-driven world that is just constantly evolving. And that's just really stuck with me. And um, Caroline Wanga was there, who is the CEO of Essence Ventures, who I'd heard of, but hadn't really dug into who she was. And she walks on the, sta on the stage and she's in this like gingham print outfit. She has this like, these like super giant statement piece jewelry things on accessories. Her hair is like dyed orange and burgundy and it's in this perfect <laughs> bun that's like the shape of a hot air balloon. And I'm like, who is this woman? Like she walks in and you know, who she is. Um, and she starts her, her talk off by actually not talking. She shows some slides and the slides don't have any music. They don't have any audio. Um, to my knowledge, this was an accessible conference. So I believe anyone that needed, you know, visual sure. support or the visually impaired had some assistance, but she shows these slides and they're just short and sweet. And they kind of highlight some things about her. Like, you know, I've dealt with depression. I am a child of immigrant parents. I, all these things that made her who she is. And it wasn't a resume of her professional journey. It was just who she was as a human and her, her lived experiences. And it was just the perfect intro to her conversation, which was about authenticity. And she actually has like developed this framework to help people, I, you know, understand who they are to discover their purpose and live as their authentic selves. And for a long time, for me, I've thought of authenticity as just like this buzzword. I'm like, people are just throwing this shit Same, around. Like, yeah. what, And what does that mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm here on myself. Like, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there really are levels to it. Right. And, and I'm now thinking about leadership in different ways. I'm also thinking about DEI in different ways of, you know, none of us are ever going to have all the answers. We're never going to get it right. Sure, cancel culture might live. I don't know. I feel like cancel culture is dying down a little bit, thankfully. Um, yeah, maybe we're just all tired of it. Who knows? Yeah, I'm like nothing. Nothing and no one's going to exist if we just keep canceling everything. And how do yeah. people learn? You don't give well, people the opportunity to. Grow, and how many people right? have been canceled have just come back or like not? You know, like I think Surprise. people are also just tired of like <laughs> it not making yeah. a difference. Unfortunately. Yeah, they just pop up and just continue onward. Um, so yeah, I think this just this this running theme of authenticity has really stood out to me and it makes sense. I mean, there's a lot that we can learn as leaders, as, you know, people working in change management, ESG, DEI, um skills that you may pick up from trainings or certificates or whatever else it is, but when it comes to authenticity, it to me takes a lot more work, right? Um you may have to unlearn some beliefs that you have about leadership and what leadership means and what it can look like. Yeah. You have to increase your self-awareness. Like there's a lot of introspection to be done and it gets uncomfortable. Like since I heard her talk, I've been sitting with myself and I'm like, 
who am I? What is my purpose? <laughs> what am I doing with myself? Yes, yeah. I've been good at all of these things for a long time. Um, but what I've come to realize is what has made me good at what I do and so passionate about what I do is not so much the pretty frameworks and the DEI roadmaps and you know, getting to work with really cool clients and people. It's that I have all these lived experiences that have allowed me to be receptive to different types of people that have allowed me to just inherently approach things with empathy, um, even if I don't have the same lived experience, right? Yeah. Um, But that has been a a pretty ugly process over the past week. A lot of like, am I this person? Can I say (laughs) this out loud? Is this okay? Um, And I know, you know, it's it's a journey. So this is going to be a continued thing. But I think And I often remind leaders, like, you have to do this self-assessment. And the self-assessment isn't, how good am I at giving feedback? It it has to go deeper than that, right? Or feed feed forward, as we talked about on the last episode. Let's not. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, Interesting to think about authenticity as a leadership skill. Like, I, yeah, you're right that it is a buzz buzzword and people talk about being your authentic self online. And I've just always rolled my eyes about it because it always just feels like a red herring, like mm-hmm. in that the people that we follow and we find the most interesting, I don't think are necessarily being their authentic selves. They're being entertaining. Mm-hmm. They're being charismatic. They mm-hmm. come off as authentic, you know, but are they actually being your authentic selves? And do we actually yeah. want that? Like, I've always, I've always thought about my grandma. Like my grandma being her authentic self online is not going to get like suddenly have a media mogul empire. Like she's, do you know what I mean? Like there's a certain yeah. kind of authenticity we're looking for. We want yeah. things to feel authentic. And so that's why I always felt like it was a red herring. But thinking about it as a leadership skill, it's kind of stirring the pot yeah. a little bit for me because leadership, we are always taught, if anything, to not be authentic. Like we're when we get into leadership positions, we are coached into putting ourselves in a box. What can we say? What can we not say? What's the, mm-hmm. how, how can we properly communicate to the people who are following us? How can we properly communicate to the outside world? How do we use a voice yeah. that is professional, but also warm and all like, we're just, exactly. we are constantly kind of in guardrails up, if anything, instead of mm-hmm. actually trying to figure out what is the most quote unquote authentic. So that, I think that's, a, that's a really interesting thing to noodle on. And I'm going to noodle on it. You're, it you're really stirring the pot for me, Adriel. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, a couple things uh, in reaction to what you just said. I think for me, at least, I often am able to weed through the bullshit. Like when I am listening or observing someone, I can tell when they're like putting on um, mm. especially with leaders because I've just sat with so many for so long. Yeah, And in comparison, when I'm placed in front of someone like Caroline Wanga, who literally showed up as herself, was not being anything less than, more than, the difference is just so drastic and so apparent. Um, Mm. And one of the things, yeah, one of the things that she said about this idea of authenticity and how she's grown into it, because she was like, I haven't always been like this. It's taken time, right? Yeah. Um, was the fact that when she is her authentic self and presents who she is, for example, you know, sharing those those personal facts and rather vulnerable facts up front about herself, she said that she does it because it disarms people. And it's true because it really does just at some point, because there were so many things that she shared, 
and even it was just a few minutes of slides, like I think maybe two minutes, if that, maybe even 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. But there was something within those, those experiences and our identities that people could relate to on some level. Like it, yeah. you would have been hard pressed not to connect with her based on what she shared. Um, and that alone, I think, is something that we need more of to open people up to having these more, I'm using air quotes, difficult conversations, because I kind of hate when people use that. Um, <laughs> but for some people, it is, you know, it's challenging to have certain conversations like feedback or feed forward or, you know, talking about inclusion or any of the isms, racism, sexism, et cetera. So yeah. if we're able to disarm people a little bit, humanize ourselves to say, hey, we're we're all in this together. We don't all have the answers, but we can bring our differences together to think through them and to have productive conversations and discourse mm. could switch things up. So yeah, that's so um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the idea a lot of authenticity, not being something that we become like, we don't become our authentic selves. Like I don't, I think maybe part of the problem of how we think about authenticity is like, we're yeah. either authentic or we're not like, yeah. Going back to our conversation about binaries, we think about it in a very binary well, way. Either it's authentic mm -hmm. or it's not. Right. And actually, if we reframe authenticity as like a, a journey that we're on, like the goal is to be our authentic selves, but we're actually discovering that in new ways every day because who we are changes. And Absolutely. what we want changes and we are shedding societal expectations, but we're also again, maybe putting on new expectations as leaders or as parents or as like as we take on new roles. And so it is a it's a moving target, but a worthwhile goal, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, over time, your values may shift, your your perspectives on things may shift. Um, and I think authenticity is more so about reflecting on that and periodically running those self-assessments to get a sense of where you are and to ensure at least in the as it relates to leadership that you are leading in a way that is true to that right you're not forcing anything um a friend of mine recently introduced me to this concept uh in chinese philosophy called wu wei which hmm. basically translates to non-action and at first i was like non-action what the i know what? no <laughs> but it's not it's Our not American necessarily selves are like what right? are you talking about like, non-action what do you mean <laughs> um but it's not about not like it's not about being inactive or not reacting to things but it's more so about living life with purpose and meaning and not forcing things so if mm. you know that you are not i don't know if your leadership style isn't like authoritarian why the hell are you trying to be an authoritarian style leader try yeah. do what works for you like right so it's it's i'm not forcing it um i am going to indeed embrace like who i am naturally while also taking into consideration the fact that diversity exists right like there's not one size fits all for leading people in particular um but you don't have to force yourself into something that is not right for you that doesn't align to you that yeah. is inauthentic to use the word right, right? i like that so. This yeah. is good. This this is good. Yeah. So very glad you went. Glad you were able to report back on some insights to the leadership community. And uh, for sure, you know what? We should do this more often. You and I go to we some should. interesting things. We should we should make yeah. that, like segments to, to kind of debrief um, the things that we're learning. 
Absolutely. I'm going to, uh, there's a conference here called CultureCon uh, happening in like two weeks that I'm going to. So really looking forward to that as well. Um, similar approach where it's going to be very innovative, open conversations with folks. So cool. I'll report yet again. Yeah, looking report forward back to it. yet again. Yeah. All right. Well, let's end with our good things. Excited to hear what you're bringing this week. All right, Adriel, what is your one piece of good news for the week? Well. Caleb, um, apparently corporate America promised to hire a lot more people of color. Um, We've heard those kind of promises, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Bloomberg is reporting that corporate America actually did it. They, they hired hey. people of color. Um, year, the year after Black Lives Matter protests, the S&P 100, let's be clear, we're talking specifically about the S&P 100, which includes companies like Apple, for example, um, AT&T, Target, Target, uh, T-Mobile, <laughs> PayPal, some others. Um, but they added more than 300,000 jobs. Um, and of those, 94% went to people of color. Um, this is data based on 2021. So while it is good news, I am curious to see what this looks like now, given the layoffs and what did we call yeah. it before? The great reshuffling. It's kind of wild to, to think it. about how much the economy has changed since 2021. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Drastically. Drastically. So, yeah, um, that's another thing that I, I think we might want to explore one day on leadership is the fact that data is no longer kind of keeping up with present <laughs> the present um because there is, is it, a little I bit mean, of a lag yeah well this data comes from the u.s equal employment opportunity commission that requires companies with 100 more employees to report their workforce demographics every year so right. it there's going to be a little bit of a lag kind of like there's a lag in census data you know like it just takes time to collect takes time to process of course so some of it is that that a lot of that collection process is probably to your point antiquated the government mm -hmm. typically is not tech forward in a way that keeps up with the ability to, you know, do what the private sector can do. Yeah. But a lot of it, I think, is that <laughs> just how quickly the world's changing. I mean, again, thinking about yeah. 2021 to 2023, I'm like, oh, my God, 2021 feels like 10 years ago, not two mm -hmm. years ago. Right. Yeah, it really does. Part really of that does. is COVID, like how much happened in those first few years after COVID and how slow it made everything feel. But yeah, it's wild. Absolutely. Yeah. In the spirit of leadership or leadership, I <laughs> <laughs> um, just wanted to highlight that there was a 2% increase in um, uh, professional or there was a 2% increase in the number of roles, executive, managerial, and professional roles that are held by people of color. Um, white people during 2021, according to this data, still held a disproportionate share of the top high paid jobs. Again, this is of the US S&P 100 companies, but there was some movement there. So that is worth noting. It is. Let's celebrate wins where we can. Yeah. Let's Ooh, hope that this kind of hiring stuck around for the, you know, for the two years we don't have data on yet. I'm, I'm not yeah. that confident, but if we had a huge increase in it and even a percentage of it stuck around, I mean, that's at least still good news. Yeah, it's something. It's something. It's progress. Yeah. 
What are you bringing today for your good news? I'm going to talk about an experiment that Starbucks has been running for a while. In 25 markets, um, a reusable cup program. They are planning to start a reusable cup program by the end of 2025. And so they're doing a little bit of an experiment to um, see what consumers will actually use. Are they going to bring it back? You know, like I actually have a few um, local coffee shops. I don't know if you have any of these that do a, a reusable cup solutions where you can get coffee in a reusable cup and they actually have a program where you can kind of tag it to your account and then like bring it back later and like they'll know that you brought it back and then you know if you don't bring it back they just charge you for the cup that's basically how it works Um, i have not seen that yeah i've seen a few coffee shops do this and there's even like some startups that are kind of focusing on helping enable that for small businesses Mm -hmm. so starbucks you know obviously much bigger operation to do that on a global scale but they're trying it um and i'm excited about this not the obviously good for the environment but one yeah. of my, the first companies I started, this is a good uh, Caleb history. One of the first companies Ooh. I started was focused on reusable coffee cups. So it was called cool. Save the Cups. And a few friends of mine designed a website where you could actually track your progress to how many um, uh, non-recyclable at the time, um, Starbucks or really any coffee shop cup you saved, quote unquote, by bringing mm-hmm. a reusable cup. And it was just, you know, it was a small project. It was focused on the fact that a lot of me and my friends were like going from the office buying these like non-recyclable at the, you know, again, Starbucks at the time was like lining their cups with this like plastic basically that kept it Mm -hmm. from being able to be recycled. So every time it was being thrown in the trash, thrown in the trash. So we came up with this idea to just kind of gamify the idea of bringing your own cup. And that was my first company I ever started. That's awesome. Um... Yeah, I mean, my brain didn't even think about there. I have so many spots where I, I've got to just pay a little bit more attention to sustainability because I didn't even think about like the coffee cups. And as someone who is a little addicted to getting my iced coffee, <laughs> <laughs> my iced three lattes, times a week we've established. Yes, approximately three times a week, although this week we're probably going to hit four to five. <laughs> um, Been that kind of week, huh? Yeah, to me, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, oh, as long as I recycle my cup, but putting it into perspective, it's like that adds up over time. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I I know my local coffee shop, I believe they try to use eco-friendly products, but that just then increases cost because my coffee, the price just keeps going up. Um, This reminds me. It is. It is. It definitely is. This reminds me a few years ago um, when I was living in Manhattan, I used to go to Just Salad all the time. I don't know if that exists. Uh-huh. Yeah, in- I know Just okay. Salad. Yeah, and they had the, the reusable bowl. And so you, I think they still have the program, but you would take your bowl in and you actually dropped it off and they would wash it and sanitize it and you would just get another one and you would save like a dollar or two on yep. a salad by getting the reusable bowl program. We had so. a just salad down the street from Bain when I worked there and I used to do that all yeah. the time. Yeah. I'm it was kind of weird because I ended up off. having like a dirty old bowl sitting in my office oh. for like 24 hours until <laughs> I went back. <laughs> so that part wasn't great. But, yeah. you know, good on them for trying something. Yeah. I'm surprised. That that program has been around for a while. I, I would have expected it to have expanded more, but I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Now I'm curious. I mean, just in general, there aren't, very many companies trying these kinds of programs or like trying to not 
be, you know, so one and done with their products. Sure. Um, a, a spokesperson, spokeswoman for Starbucks said that uh, their cups account for 40% of the company's packaging annu- annually and 20% of its waste footprint. Wow. So, and just 1.2% of Starbucks drinks were served in reusable containers. Hmm. It's not surprising to me. They don't really even present that as an option. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, they're not, you're not incentivized to do it. You're not prompted to do it. You're not reminded to do it. They have it on a mobile app. They could remind people <laughs> to bring yeah. their own cup. But then yeah. you couldn't make the drink ahead of time and go in and pick it up, you know? like Grab and go, yeah. Exactly, that which would hit their bottom sense. line. So anyway, we'll um, see. Yeah. Is it an experiment yeah. right now? But excited to see them trying something because they just have such a massive footprint. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Spar- Starbucks, last thing before we wrap up, I recently learned that you can get free a free refill at Starbucks. Did you know this? A free refill of what? So if you um, are visiting a Starbucks location, including some of the Target locations, they have to be participating in this program. But if you order a beverage, you can go back to the counter and get a free, I think it's either an iced tea or iced coffee or just hot coffee, like plain with like a splash of milk or something. Um, And they'll pretty much just refill your cup with for free one of those items. Yeah, for free, as long as it's like within the same visit. All right. I usually just drink black coffee. So that's good to know for me. I. There you go. So, yeah, if you're ever at Target and you're like, uh, you start your, your trip with a Starbucks beverage and you want to grab a little refill on your way out. Nice. Not all, not all locations, but a good number of them seem to be participating. Also, yeah, one of those little easy for them to do, considering not many people like hang around their Starbucks anymore. It's so grab yeah. and go now. Yeah. A lot of them don't even have seats anymore here. So there's that. Yeah. One down in our neighborhood just turned into like a mobile and delivery, not delivery, um, a mobile and window, I guess, only um, yeah, yeah. service. So they're definitely moving that direction. But definitely. works for me. I only drink black coffee. I'm not I'm not fussy, Adriel. I know I look like I'd be fussy, <laughs> but I'm, I'm unfussy. Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely am. I'm very particular about my coffee beverages. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, lovely as always to talk to you and excited to talk next week again. Yeah, I will see you then. Talk soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com and find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. You can find more about me, Adrielle, and my diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielleparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership.